Okay. We're going to be in kind of a bunch of places in Mark today. Uh, all near the first. We're still sort of getting into the story. Uh, so if you'll just turn to Mark 1, we'll, we'll start there in a certain spot and we'll jump around and let you know when we get there. And I want to start by saying that uh, every single one of us has a calling. We may not know it, we may not fully understand it, we may even be afraid of it, but anyone who has given their life to Jesus has a calling for sure. Knowing that we have a calling is the starting point. Most of us have heard uh, the Great Commission, uh, go into all the world and preach the gospel. We know that Jesus told his disciples to do that. Wherever you go, preach the gospel. But many of us seem to think that preaching the gospel is something only certain people can do. Only people who are trained in seminaries and have letters behind their names. And there's nothing wrong with education and receiving degrees. But is that what qualifies as a calling? Did Jesus' first disciples have degrees? Is that why he called them? Were they among the religious elite of their time? Or were they, for the most part, normal, everyday folks like you and me? And among the ones Jesus called to be his disciples, how many of them even fully understood their calling? How many grasped who Jesus was and what he came to do. Even as Jesus taught them over the course of his three-year ministry, how many of them had any real idea what was going to happen or why? When Jesus sent them out to preach the gospel, did they even comprehend what it was they were telling people? Based on what we see in scriptures, it seems that they didn't, at least not fully. And we could probably say the same thing for ourselves to some extent. We have a basic grasp of the gospel. Jesus died for our sins and rose again so that we could have eternal life. But beyond that, it doesn't take too long before we start disagreeing with each other about what this means or what that means. And then there's fear. So many people who claim to follow Jesus are for some reason, just so afraid of engaging people with the gospel for some reason. Some don't think they know enough. Others feel embarrassed for various reasons. And still others think that only really good people can go around telling other people about God. I'm sure there are plenty of reasons, other reasons that people have as well. We all have our particular reasons. Today, we're going to look at that and, and begin to see how we can move past our reasons and into our calling, because every single one of us has a calling. We're going to be reading from three separate passages today to see who followed Jesus and why, and we're going to begin to see what kind of calling Jesus gave them and how he expected them to carry it out. So follow along with me, if you will. We're going to begin in Mark 1, verse 16. 
Passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, Follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in their boat, mending the nets. And immediately he called to them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with their hired servants, and followed him. And if you will turn to chapter 2, beginning in verse 13. He went out again beside the sea, and all the crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, Follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as he reclined at table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? When Jesus heard it, he said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. And over in chapter 3, verse 7. Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea, and a great crowd followed from Galilee and Judea, and Jerusalem and Idumea, and from beyond the Jordan, and from around Tyre and Sidon. When the great crowd heard all that he was doing, they came to him, and he told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd, lest they crush him. For he had healed many, so that all who had diseases pressed around him to touch him. And whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God, and he strictly ordered them not to make him known. And he went up on the mountain and called to him those whom he desired, and they came to him. And he appointed twelve, whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him, and he might send them out to preach, and have authority to cast out demons. He appointed the twelve, Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James the son of Zebedee, and John the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Boanerges, that is, sons of thunder, Andrew and Philip, and Bartholomew, and Matthew and Thomas, and James the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, and Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Then he went home, and the crowd gathered again, so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they said, He is out of his mind. May God bless the reading of his word. Okay, so let's jump in by defining what a disciple is real quick. Because there are a lot of people who believe in God and Jesus, but probably wouldn't really be described as disciples. The word in the Greek there is mathates, which means a learner, a, a, a disciple, or a pupil. But in the context of first century Judaism, a disciple was someone who not only learned from a rabbi, but learned how to act and live like that rabbi. How to not only say what he said, but also do what he did. It was like being an apprentice or doing an internship. Those are the closest 
ideas that we might have that come into that. It was a period of training that prepared a person for the work that was to come. Jesus had a lot of people who followed him around to hear what he would say, but how many were willing to take on the weight of doing what he did? This is where there's a big difference between those who listened to Jesus or even approached him for some sort of miracle and those who went on to become his disciples. It wasn't a hierarchy. That's not what we're talking about. They weren't better people than the others. They weren't more qualified. They weren't more moral. They were just willing. And that's the primary ingredient in being a disciple. Willingness. These days, pardon me, words like Christian and disciple and follower tend to have a fairly negative connotation in the world and not even for the right reasons. The church in the West has been either too overbearing or too casual when it comes to our relationship with both Jesus and those around us. In turn, we have earned the exasperation of the very people we have been called to reach. But I'm sort of jumping ahead a bit. Let's see how things unfold in the passage. In chapter 1, we read about Jesus calling Simon, we know that's Peter, and his brother Andrew, as well as James and his brother John. And all four of these guys were fishermen. So as Jesus passed by, he used terminology they would understand to invite them to be among his disciples. Unfortunately, we have enshrined the terminology itself as if it it can never be changed. But if we are truly following Jesus, then we will take the time to understand and employ terminology that makes sense to those we are trying to teach, which is exactly what Paul did in Athens in Acts 17. He didn't go there and tell the people in Athens that he would make them fishers of men because they weren't fishermen. Instead, he recognized that they were a very religious culture and then referred to their statue of an unknown God as an entry point for the gospel. If we are followers of Jesus like Paul was, we should be looking for ways to do the same thing. And the problem is that many of us don't have the desire to learn or do anything new to reach out beyond our own little sphere of knowledge and comfort. We're sort of like infants who don't want to give up our bottle, even though it means that in time we get to have steak. Which is exactly what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 3, 1 through 2, writing, But I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it, and even now you are not yet ready. Far too many believers are content with their bottles and pacifiers and all the other stuff that comes with being a baby. And that's one of the most troubling things about us. How could we who have been forgiven and changed by God be so content with less than the full measure of what God has to give us? And why are we so willing to exchange the lives of those around us for our own sense of comfort? 
When these guys left their way of life behind and followed Jesus, they were not signing up for safety and security. They were not guaranteeing their own comfort. Quite the opposite. They were leaving those things behind to follow the calling. That meant surrendering their lives to all kinds of uncertainty. But that's what faith is, right? Faith isn't figuring it all out and signing up for a recliner. It's stepping beyond everything that is safe and finding the freedom of living uncomfortably close to the untamed reality of God's calling. And if we don't, and I'm sorry, if we need to understand the difference between those two things, we don't need to look any further than the religious folks here in the text. In our second section of the text this morning, we see that when Jesus called a tax collector, he ended up having a meal with him and all of his outcast friends. And the religious folks just didn't get it. They didn't approve. They couldn't fathom why he would do that. It was just so wrong, so outlandish, so uncomfortable. And you can almost picture them squirming with indignation as Jesus walked into the tax collector's house. But then again, how does the church act now? How, how do each of us act now? What priorities do we have? Is loving our neighbor on that list of priorities? Are we ready to invest our time and effort into what that really looks like? Or are we more like these religious leaders, grumbling about the kinds of people Jesus was hanging out with and assuring ourselves that we would never stoop so low? It's like we know Jesus saved us. We don't want him saving anyone else. It almost seems like we're kind of like Jonah. Remember the story of Jonah? Didn't want to go and proclaim God's message to them because he, and this is what he said, I know that when I do, they'll repent and you'll forgive them. He didn't want to go to Nineveh. Nineveh was the enemy. We're kind of like that too. We don't, don't want to go proclaim God's message because we know God will forgive people that we don't like. And then we'll have to. God forbid we be like that. Jesus responded to these people by telling them he didn't come to heal the healthy, but the sick. That he didn't come to call the righteous, but sinners. As if any of the religious leaders were righteous. As if any of them were truly spiritually healthy, you can see from their lives that they weren't. If we are serious about being like Jesus, then we need to pay attention to this kind of thing when we see it, because it could very easily be about us if we aren't willing to drop whatever we think is important and go after Jesus with all we have, even if that means forgiving those we don't like, forgiving our enemies befriending people that don't fit. Because that's the difference between the disciples and the religious folks here. It's not that one group had it all figured out and the other group was just a bunch of dummies. It's that one group was willing to follow 
and the other wasn't. That's it. We need to decide which group we want to be in, and then we need to make a solid commitment to it, to be all in. Give our lives over completely. Instead of wavering somewhere between the, the two ideas, wanting Jesus but not actually following him. At this point, we're going to jump on into the third and final section of chapter 3 because it's the largest of the three. It has some incredibly important ideas for us to consider. In verse 13, we see that Jesus went up to the mountain and called to him those he desired. And it's at this point that he appointed these 12 as apostles. And the Greek word there, apostolos, it means a messenger or an envoy or a delegate, one commissioned by another to represent them in some way. And literally, it means to be sent forth with the connotation being of them being sent forth with the authority of the sender. Which means Jesus not only chose these 12 disciples, but also gave them the authority to carry his message as his representatives and do what he would do wherever they went. And so wherever they went, they would go and do as messengers of the gospel of his kingdom. That part seems pretty straightforward, right? What we see there is not really confusing. But there was something else going on in this that we need to recognize. Because Jesus went up on a mountain outside of town, out in the wilderness, mountain in the wilderness, in order to call 12 followers to himself for the sake of proclaiming his kingdom. Now, does any of that sound familiar? We've talked about meeting God in the wilderness and the parallels being made between Jesus and the story of the Exodus that came before him. There was heavy, heavy symbolism involved in what he was doing. He was doing it on purpose because he was trying to draw attention to who he was and why he came. This was not some casual detail that Mark just sort of threw in there for fun. Oh yeah, Jesus went out to a mountain. It's vital to what is going on, to who Jesus was and what he was doing, because in that moment, Jesus was revealing himself as the new and better Moses leading a new and better Exodus. We often sort of skip ahead in our minds when we are reading, thinking of the entire story in terms of Jesus' death on the cross. We sort of been trained that way. And his sacrifice is definitely a vital part of the story. But so is this. Because this is his mission statement. This is Jesus declaring his purpose to bring the kingdom of heaven and earth back together to bring about the kingdom of God on earth as it is in heaven. And he had proclaimed this gospel. And he had then manifested the kingdom through teaching and casting out demons and healing and forgiving. And now that he had proclaimed it and showed people what it looked like, he was choosing 12 to carry it forward. 
just like the 12 tribes of Israel. He wanted them to walk in his footsteps and learn to say and do what he said and did, to proclaim the gospel of Jesus and his kingdom wherever they went from that point forward. And though they didn't even fully grasp it yet, they were willing and they went. So who were these 12 men that Jesus chose to represent the 12 tribes of Israel in this new exodus? Why was he willing to convey his authority on these 12? Why was he willing to give them the power to do what he did? What was so special about them? Nothing. Nothing about them was special. As we already noted, they were not the elite. They were not sophisticated. They were not the cream of the crop or anything like that. They were everyday people. But each of them was willing, and that set them apart. Another thing we should notice about these guys is that they were very different from each other. We know at least four of them were fishermen. As we read through the list of the twelve, we find out a couple of more details. Uh, Simon received the name Peter, which is uh, Petros, which means rock in Greek. It was probably a commentary on his stature more than anything else. Uh, though it would come to me more in time. James and John received the nickname Sons of Thunder. And in Greek, the word there is Boanerges. And it means Sons of Thunder or Sons of Commotion or Sons of Tumult. In other words, it was a nickname that sort of meant troublemakers. Jesus obviously saw how they interacted with each other and those around them, but he chose them anyway. He chose these troublemakers, and he had big plans for them. I take great solace in that. He had plans that would see one of them become the first of the twelve to be martyred, and he was killed by a sword, by Herod. And the other outlived the other eleven, and transformed from being a son of thunder and commotion to being the disciple we know is the shepherd of love. We wrote 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, the gospel of epistles of love. Another among the twelve was a guy named Simon the Zealot. And this is fascinating because zealots were the kind of people in that day who wanted to overthrow Rome. And Herod as well. Herod was Rome's little sort of puppet king. They wanted to overthrow all of that. They wanted to do it like yesterday. <laughs> They were typically willing to rally around figures they believed would bring that about, people who would lead the revolution. Simon most likely believed that Jesus would lead a revolution at some point. That he would be the one to overturn the corrupt and fraudulent Roman Empire and kick them out of Judea. But as a zealot, Simon would have been fiercely opposed to the likes of Levi, the tax collector. And we know that his Greek name was Matthew, so that's how that kind of works. Uh, but Matthew, Levi, he worked for Rome. And he profited from it, from betraying his own people. And so Simon and, and Matthew would have, would have had a problem. Now to be fair, Matthew would have been fiercely opposed to Simon as well. 
These two guys had no reason to get along and every reason to despise each other, to wish harm on each other and, and even maybe to kill each other. It wasn't unheard of. But in Jesus, they found the peace to get along and to love each other. And what we know about them and the rest of the 12 should stir in us both conviction and hope Conviction for any way in which we don't get along with our brothers and sisters in Christ. And hope that if Jesus chose these guys as his team of messengers and representatives, he could certainly choose and work through us as well. Because we are just as diverse as they were. We come from various walks of life, different ethnic backgrounds and economic standing. We come with different ideas and opinions about life and culture and politics. But in Christ, we are one. Just as the Holy Spirit sewed the first disciples together as one family, we too are being sewn together in our hearts for the sake of the kingdom. Unless, of course, we are rebelling against the will of God and refusing to love each other and be made one in Christ. In which case, we need to ask ourselves who it is we think we are and what it is we think we are supposed to be doing in a church. Because that's not how God's kingdom works. Jesus didn't come here to start a new religion or to make an old religion better. He came to establish his kingdom among us and begin to make us whole so that we might love God and each other which he said of the greatest commandments. And that's part of what we learn from who Jesus chose and why he chose them. Because Jesus wasn't doing this whole thing alone. He wasn't bringing about the kingdom all by himself. And he still isn't. Now don't get me wrong, Jesus alone did everything that makes the kingdom possible. And the Holy Spirit alone transforms us into the kind of people we are called to be in order to proclaim his kingdom and live according to the Father's will. But we have a role in this. We have a calling, a purpose, a reason for living. And I'm not saying it will ever be easy or comfortable or luxurious or safe or anything like that because Jesus told us otherwise but it will absolutely always be worth it. Always. As we read in 1 Peter 2, verses 9 through 10, that you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of the darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. So that's about us. Jesus chose us to become something entirely new, a race that goes beyond all ethnicities, a priesthood that goes beyond all religious traditions, 
a holy nation that stretches well beyond the borders that we draw for ourselves on the map. We are a holy possession. God's own people, beloved children created in the image of God and rescued from the darkness so that we might tell everyone about this magnificent light of God's kingdom. Because it's not just for us. This is what Jesus began when he walked up on that mountain to choose these 12 guys. It's also why his family showed up thinking he was crazy and tried to take him home. They saw what he was saying and doing and thought he was out of his mind. And that's not a casual detail either. Mark didn't just add this in for no reason. We need to know that when it came to the gospel of the kingdom, it was the people closest to Jesus all his life who thought he was being ridiculous and making outrageous claims. If we take this calling seriously, we will face that as well. Some people will think we are being ridiculous and making outrageous claims. Some will think we are out of our minds. And some of the people thinking these things will be those closest to us, even family which may be the reason many of us don't want to step out and really be like Jesus. We want to like him from a safe distance so that the people closest to us will nod and approve of our beliefs. But when we trade the life of Jesus that he is calling us to for the ability to have people think we are normal, we miss out on everything Jesus wants for us. And it's so much more than we have in mind for ourselves. The really crazy thing, if you ask me, is to ignore this calling. To think we can live our best life on our own terms. To keep living our way as if that's what will make us whole. To be religiously devout like the Pharisees and yet find ourselves completely outside the kingdom of God. To be at war with each other. As if something outside of us is more important than our being united as one in Christ in our hearts. That's the stuff that's really crazy. Because we have a calling and a purpose, a reason for living, we have a role in what God is doing in the world, even now. And that's to take the message of the gospel of Jesus with us wherever we go, wherever we interact with people, and to invite people into this kingdom. Just like those first 12. So let's go and say and do what Jesus went and said and did. Inviting everyone to know and experience God's love for them, just as we do. Will you pray with me? Holy Father, we come before you. In the story of how Jesus 
chose these 12 to carry the message and to live like he did. May it rest on our hearts and minds today and in the days ahead. May the Holy Spirit use it to challenge us and change us and make us more like Jesus every day. May we be the ones who are willing to enter the homes of people others consider outcasts. May we be the ones who reach out to those who feel marginalized by society and show them your love. May we reflect who you are in what we say and do. We pray this in Jesus' name.